Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm speaking to Dr. Lara Zabaris, Chartered Occupational Psychologist and Food Freedom Coach. Lara's background is in academic psychology, where she has worked for City University of London, running a successful postgraduate psychology course. Throughout her career, Lara's passion has been helping people succeed in both work and life. Through her work as an associate professor in organisational psychology, she has explored ways to improve people's working lives and feel more fulfilled in their roles. But today, she primarily works as a nutrition and wellness coach, running her own online health and wellness business, Health Mindset Matters. Lara combines her background in psychology and nutrition to support people to create mindset shifts and heal their relationship with food and body image. Lara came to work in this field after years of intensive dieting and then developing an eating disorder. However, she has fully recovered and got her life back on track when discovering the power of working on her mindset. Lara's mission today is to help people create a positive relationship with food and work on their body acceptance. In this episode, we talk about Lara's journey in healing her relationship with food and the factors that helped her heal and claim food freedom. We delve into the mindset work that Lara found to be incredibly helpful on her journey and understand the impact of core beliefs and thinking styles and how she supports her clients today. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to Lara today. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Lara. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Harriet. Thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here today. Oh, fantastic. So I should call you Dr. Lara, actually. Hi, <laughs> Dr. Lara. And please, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, so I'm Dr. Lara Zbaris. I'm a psychologist and food freedom coach. So I've worked in the area of psychology for about 15 years and more recently in health coaching and now specifically food freedom coaching. Okay, no, lovely. So Lara, I know that as with many of us, you have come to work in this field through your own experiences yes. and struggling with your own relationship with food. Yes. So please, would you just tell us a little bit more about that, please? Absolutely. So I actually started dieting when I was about 16 years old. And it's funny because when I think back on it, it just seemed like a really normal thing to do because a lot of the people around me were dieting. My mom was on a diet. My aunts were on diets. And I thought, well, I need to lose a bit of weight. So I'll just go on a diet. And it's interesting because I initially got quite a lot of positive feedback, people saying, oh, wow, you, you know, you look great. What are you doing? Kind of thing. But then what I found is that that restrictive dieting, and I did all sorts of fad diets. I was in, in a time when low fat was quite, you know, the thing to do where Atkins was also the thing to do. So I was doing all those fad diets, getting a lot of positive feedback, but then that restrictive eating very soon turned into disordered eating, 
and then a full-blown eating disorder. And it's interesting, again, looking back, I didn't really realize initially that what I was doing was actually bulimia. So I was finding that all the restricting that I was doing through dieting was actually quite hard. So I'd be very good at restricting for a while. And then that would lead to a binge. And I knew that I didn't want to be binging. So that ended me purging. So I then realized maybe about four or five years into this, that because it was quite on and off that I was actually bulimic. And so when I was maybe in my early 20s by this stage, I realized that I actually didn't want to be doing this. I was actually just recently out of my university degree as a psychologist. So I kind of knew what I was doing. I knew that the habits weren't very good habits to continue with. And that's when I reached out for help. And I went to see an eating disorder counselor. And I also had some nutrition counseling as well, because I got to the stage in, it was probably mid twenties. I felt like I just had forgotten how to eat. I didn't know what was normal. I was either so used to restricting or I was binging and I didn't really know what a quote unquote normal day of eating looked like. And I found that really helpful. And I think because I was so ready to change and I maybe because also having a psychology background, that process was quite quick. And very soon afterwards, I felt like I had a very positive relationship with food, but doesn't stop there because when I got pregnant a few years later in my early thirties, that period of pregnancies, because I have two children now, I really struggled with. And again, I, I know that that was my eating disorder history. I found that my body changing so much and the pressure that women have to get their bodies back to quote unquote normal after they, you know, the babies are born and lose the baby weight and all that kind of thing. It really sent me into this very negative spiral again. But because I'd been through that eating disorder and I'd been bulimic and I'd been dieting, I thought, well, I'm not going to diet, but I got sucked into wellness culture which I didn't really realize, but now I realize was absolutely diet culture in disguise. And so I was following all these influencers who were saying, you know, cut this out for health and you should, everyone should be gluten-free and you mustn't have dairy, all those kinds of things. And I was actually left with very little that I could eat, but it was all in the name of health. And again, looking back, I realized that it was terrible for my mental health, but I was really doing it because I thought that it was the right thing to do. And once again, I was getting a lot of really positive feedback for people. So people would say, wow, you're so disciplined to eat so healthily and don't you eat well, and don't you look good and all that kind of thing. But thankfully, because I think probably because of my eating disorder history, it didn't last too long. And I think I had this massive wake up call when I was finding that I was starting to miss out on social events. I didn't want to go out because I knew that I was, I had such a strict eating plan, so restrictive. And I was, I felt embarrassed when I was invited over for dinner and people would say, is there anything you can't eat? And I'd give them a long list of things. Mm -hmm. So I started to realize that that disordered eating was probably orthorexia actually now looking back in retrospect. And ironically, at the same sort of time, I was actually training to be a health coach as well, because I'd been I'd been a psychologist for several years after my daughter was born, who's now seven. I thought, oh, I want to do something else as well. So I started training as a health coach. So I had a period of time where I myself was orthorexic and I was 
practicing as a health coach. But again, thankfully, it wasn't too long. And I'd been introduced to things like health at every size and intuitive eating whilst I was training as a health coach, but also introduced to many other things, including more of a weight centric approach. So as I had that realization of, oh dear, I've got sucked, you know, I'm, I'm back into my disordered eating ways. I, about maybe 18 months ago to two years ago, I just started getting back into everything that was health at every size aligned and intuitive eating and have completely refocused my health coaching to be all about food freedom coaching. And actually, I think I had to spend a bit of time really unlearning a lot of the stuff that I had learned whilst in the throes of my orthorexia. So yes, that's my story and how I've got to be doing what I am today. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing. And it sounds like it has been a bit of a journey, hasn't it? With lots of twists and turns. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So Laura, would you mind me just picking up on a few bits from your story? Yeah, lovely. So kind of going back to when you were sort of 16 years old, like Mm. it sounds like everyone around you was dieting. It didn't really feel like an issue. It was very normal. Do you think as well, was there any other trigger sort of emotionally going on for you at that time? Or was it pretty much just kind of, that you were following mm. dieting as your peers and family were? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question because I think there were probably several triggers. I was at a new school, so I started a different school when I was 16 and I left the previous school because there was a bit of bullying going on. So I had been bullied at a girls' school, you can imagine, mm-hmm. 13, yeah. 14, 15 years old in a girls' environment. And so I was at a new school And one of the, I think partly, I don't know, when you're bullied, I've obviously spent a lot of time sort of thinking about it and thinking, you know, what was it exactly that triggered it? And I think because you can control so little when you're being bullied, one of the things you can control is food. So I remember experimenting with a little bit of that disordered eating behavior kind of quite soon after the bullying. But another trigger that I remember, and I wrote this one, I remember really well, I remember being told by a guy in my class, I was a very sporty teenager. And so I was often in cycling shorts as they were back then. And one of the boys just commented on the size of my thighs. So I think it was a combination of things. And that was what really started getting me to think, oh, maybe, maybe I should lose weight. And also alongside this, I grew up in that time of all those supermodels. So people like Cindy Crawford and... L. McPherson and I used to read a lot of magazines and I remember in a lot of the magazines it would have things like their body sizes so you know bust waist and and hip and I remember looking at that Cindy Crawford in particular and thinking oh I'd quite like to be that size so I think there were a lot of things going on definitely a few triggers and combined with that dieting just seemed like a very normal and natural way forward so yeah so that's Mm. definitely happen yeah it makes a lot of sense doesn't it and I think just time and time again I think you know the experience of bullying I think Mm -hmm. you know people often you know when they're in it don't realize just how detrimental it can be I think it it can be just so devastating can't it for self-worth and at a vulnerable age as well when you just so want to fit in and be liked and accepted don't you yeah and all of that Absolutely. And I think also there's there's almost like this virtuous circle, vicious circle, whichever way you want to think about it, in that you feel very out of control and then you start to control something like food and you start getting that positive feedback. 
And there's that positive reinforcement. And I definitely experienced that. I was like, oh, you know, I'm getting this positive feedback because I've lost weight. I'll just go ahead and lose some more. And then people will like me and accept me because I now fit in or whatever my thought process was back there. And then it becomes that circle, you know, vicious circle going round and round. Yeah. And when you reached out for help and had your eating disorder counselling, it sounds like the nutrition component was really Mm. important. Yeah. You know, learning to eat again. I think that's so true for many people. But can you say a bit more about the psychological aspect and which Mm. things particularly were helpful for you? Yeah. So, yeah, I did. So did two things. I went to my GP and I got I got sent to some outpatient eating disorder counselling. So I saw a psychologist and obviously having had my background in psychology, I just found it really helpful. So on that side, she was fantastic because she helped bust a lot of myths because my biggest, my main eating disorder behavior was the bulimia. And she just bust a few myths about what was going on. And, you know, it's, it's not a great, because obviously I thought at the time that I was doing it because I wanted to lose weight. And so she bust a few myths around that. It's not really going to help you lose weight and so on. So it was more some of the yeah myth busting that she did, but because it was on the NHS and because I didn't really get the opportunity to see, I think I got to see her three times. And if I'd wanted more counseling, I would have had to pay. And she, I felt like those three sessions were kind of enough and I wasn't really going to get anything more, but what really helped me was the nutrition counseling. So I went to see, a nutritionist who specialized in eating disorders and who was actually male. And with him, it was really about just like visually what is normal, quote unquote, normal to eat on a daily basis. And he helped me face my fear foods. And that was a really big thing for me because obviously I was either restricting and then I would go and binge on all the foods that I was restricting. And he helped me face them in a sort of a quote unquote normal way. So one of the, one example is that I was terrified of toast with peanut butter and jam on it is one of the things I used to restrict. And then I would binge on it. And he said, why don't you just have that every day for breakfast? I'd like you to eat that, eat it every morning. Obviously that was terrifying for me, but I really Mm -hmm. wanted to get better. So I did. And it's funny because after a couple of weeks that psychological pull went disappeared completely. And I was like, oh, I don't actually fancy peanut butter on toast and jam today. I'm going to eat something different. And he that's what he really helped me with, was facing food, fear foods and then helping me understand a bit more about, you know, how much to eat on a daily basis and what to eat. And he was very good in that there were nothing was not allowed. So all foods, all foods were good foods, essentially. So mm. that, you know, carbs were fine and sweets were fine and chocolates were fine and ice cream was fine. And I think by allowing those foods back into my life, it took that obsession away from them. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think it's really great for the listeners to hear just mm. the evidence of how that really works. Because I think yes. when you're sort of standing on the edge of the cliff, <laughs> always like thinking about eating some of these forbidden foods it can feel terrifying Mm. can't it and yes it can mm, that fear of just complete loss of control and you know eating and eating and eating and never stopping so thank you for sharing that and it sounds as though you were really ready for change is that Mm. right so you were able to 
kind of take the risk almost to experiment with some of those changes. Absolutely. And I think this is the thing where I realise that with a lot of people and certainly people that I've worked with in the past as well in my coaching is that that readiness to change is so important because you can be aware that there's something wrong, but actually not yet be willing or want to do anything about it. And I think I'd got so far down that that scale that I was like, right, whatever you tell me I'm going to do because I just don't want to be doing this anymore. I knew that that I didn't want that behavior. It was it was I was ready for it not to be controlling me for that eating disorder to be controlling me. I wanted to be able to not have that hanging over me and not be worrying that I was going to binge crazily when I was, I don't know, at a dinner party or something. So I was ready, 100% ready to change. Yeah. So it sounds like the balance had tipped, hasn't it? So the yeah. the eating disorder symptoms were becoming more detrimental and costly. Yes. Yeah. So you yeah. really felt, yeah, I'm going to invest in this. I really want to have this food freedom and come through it. Absolutely. And actually, I remember also another thing that t- sort of tipped me over the edge is I had seen, I'd gone to see the dentist and the dentist said to me, oh, Laura, do you do you drink a lot of orange juice? And I was like, no. She said, oh, you're, you're, the enamel on your teeth really looks like someone who drinks, maybe eats lemons or oranges or something. And I realized then that obviously the bulimia was actually impacting me, my teeth negatively. So that was another thing that I was like, right, I can't be doing this anymore. I need to find something that works for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that can be a big motivator, can't yeah. it? When you really start to see the damage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then in pregnancy, did you, was this in your first pregnancy that you felt that some of the eating disorder symptoms were sort of reactivated? Yeah, absolutely. So the very first time when you start seeing your body changing drastically, because at the beginning it's fine and then slowly it becomes obviously more obvious that you're pregnant. And I think maybe not so much whilst I was actually pregnant, it was the time as soon as the baby's born. And then peep the diet speak just is unbelievable after you've had a baby, you know, the way people talk about breastfeeding, breastfeeding is wonderful because it will help your stomach shrink and we need to get back on it. Like, what are we going to do? What's the first exercise we're going to do? And there's certain, you know, you start doing exercise and they, they focus so much on your tummy, you know, well, let's do this exercise so we can shrink your tummy. And there's so much almost like shame associated with that post-pregnancy body. And I think I found it quite confusing in some ways because I knew that, obviously with my hit my history that I didn't want to get sucked back into any kind of crazy quote-unquote crazy diet I didn't want to be you know doing any 30 days to you know flat tummy type thing Mm. but I felt I felt a huge pressure to do so and then that's what everyone's talking about and then you see there's so many comments it's like oh you know so and so wow, she's back at her pre-pregnancy weight and her baby's only three months old. It's all that kind of talk and you feel this enormous pressure. So yeah, so that's definitely, it was a post-pregnancy body experience for me. And yeah, that talk, that discussion that everyone has around getting your body back. Mm. Yeah, and thank you for raising that. I think, again, it's something many of the listeners will relate to 
Mm. There are so many messages, aren't there? And I think from health professionals too, really, perhaps who are not always aware of how that can be quite triggering for an eating disorder. Yes, for sure. And second time around, was it, like you say, it was much more in that kind of orthorexia sort of zone. Mm. So did you sort of fall back into any binging and purging or was it sort of very much a different presentation second time around? So it was definitely different presentation second time around. I had just an overwhelming obsession with quote unquote clean eating and so restrictive, a super restrictive diet. There was a little bit of binging, but it was sort of strange binging because what I would do is I'd cook something that was quote unquote a healthy version of something quote unquote bad. So for example, I used to cook sweet potato brownies instead of actual chocolatey brownies. And then I'd find myself eating four or five of these healthy brownies rather than probably if I just had a normal brownie, I probably just would have had one. So there was a little bit of that where if I was eating something that was supposedly a healthier version of something else, I would find myself eating more of it than I probably would. But mostly the behavior was super restrictive because I got it into my head and I was reading blogs and following influencers who were saying, for example, something along the lines of, you know, gluten is bad for you because of X, Y, Z or dairy is inflammatory, therefore you shouldn't have it. So I had so many of these messages that I thought, well, I'll just have to cut that out and I'll have to cut this out and I'll have to cut that out. So yeah, it was kind of a slow, it was slow, it was gradual, but then it's almost like you're walking down that path and it's only when you look back that you're like, goodness me, my eating behavior is so different to what it was a few years ago. And this is not a good place to be because it is so restrictive. Mm. It sounds like it had just been so kind of normalized, hadn't it? Mm-hmm. Almost like once you're in that wellness bubble yeah. and I guess, you know, like an echo chamber, really, the kind of blogs you're reading, the people you're interacting with. Yeah, it just kind of, it doesn't feel Mm. that there's anything wrong with it. Not at all. And again, it's that getting all that positive feedback and people saying, wow, you know, you're so disciplined. It's so fab that you eat so well that you, again, it it is that vicious circle because you think, oh, this is great. I'm doing well here. I'm going to keep going. Mm. And it, wouldn't it be great if we could get to a point in our society where we stop praising people for these things? It's kind oh, of a bit bonkers, absolutely. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you have any sort of self-esteem issues, which obviously I, I know that has been one of my things that I've had to work on and used to struggle with, is that when you do get that positive feedback, it just reinforces the idea that you need to be better. I need to eat better. I need to be thinner or I need to have a flatter stomach or no cellulite on my thighs all that kind of impossible stuff really yeah it's so seductive isn't it really a very strong pull yeah and I think thank you for sharing because I think you are not alone in experiencing kind of one set of eating disorder symptoms Mm. and then maybe at a later date experience a variation from those original ones Yeah, I think people often do move, don't they, between different diagnoses? Yes, yes, exactly. So, Dr. Laura, you've worked in academia and for a lot of your career, haven't you, as a psychologist? So do you want to say a little bit more about that and perhaps how that has kind of influenced your development and if that's also impacted in your relationship with food? 
Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, I've been working in psychology for about 15 years, a slightly different area. So I'm not a traditional sort of therapist or, you know, someone sitting down and talking to me about their problems. I work with people in organizations, but a lot of my work has been around behavior change. And I think that's where I first started to implement some of my the things that I've, I'd learned as a psychologist into what I was interested in. So I think because I had had all these eating issues over the years, I thought that what I really wanted to do was get into health coaching and maybe a bit more nutrition coaching, maybe become a nutritionist. So that's why I started off with my health coaching course. And with the idea that I could use some of my what I knew as a psychologist around behavior change to help people, quote unquote, quote, get more healthy. That's, that was sort of the initial plan. And now I see very much that wellness culture influence coming in to what my intentions were around that. But thankfully, like I say, I've kind of moved on from that and very much focused on food freedom. And I still think so. I, I focus a lot on mindset, habits, and an understanding of of core beliefs to help people create that food freedom. And I firmly believe that people, part of that is letting go of diet culture, ditching diet culture, and working towards having a a healthier and happier relationship with food. And a lot of my work revolves around helping helping you support that process through mindset, habits, and understanding how what's happened to you in your past. And I think obviously that's very clear in my story, but what's happened to you as your part in your past, maybe as a child or through your teenage years, how that shapes your core beliefs and how that can really impact your behavior around food, your perceptions around yourself, your perceptions around your body image and weight. Could you tell us a bit more about core beliefs in terms of mm. what they are and how they of relate to this bigger picture of mindset yeah absolutely so basically core beliefs are general principles and assumptions that guide you through life and they can either be very something very positive or something that's self-limiting so you could have a core belief around I'm worthy or I can do anything I put my mind to but when they're self-limiting it means that you end up seeing the world in a slightly darker way than it actually is. So a core belief might be, I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy. And the reason why I think core beliefs are so important is because they shape our sense of health, sorry, our sense of self, self-worth and the decisions that we make. So if you're trying to heal your relationship with food, they're actually really important. And these core beliefs can actually start very young. So it might be things that you're... So for example, in my story, I was saying that I saw people dieting around me growing up. It normalizes that behavior. So you may create a core belief that it's better to be thinner, for example, or it could be something that people actually say to you. So trigger events, again, like I've mentioned, or things that people said to you when you were a young child growing up. And I think the problem is, and this is classic for for humans, is that we remember the negative things more than we remember the positive things. So we have this negative bias. So, you know, someone can tell you 10 positive things about you and one negative thing, and the chances are you're going to remember that one negative thing that they've said. 
And I think that understanding these core beliefs, where they come from, is going to help people in their undieting journey. Because core beliefs, again, thinking about that, that vicious circle, they manifest in the way that people talk about themselves. So you might have a core belief, I'm not worthy. And then something happens, maybe I don't know, you can't, you fail on another diet or you can't fit into clothes that you bought a year ago. So you have that feeling of failure. And then that is, that sort of perpetuates the idea of I'm not worthy. And it goes into this vicious circle. I think in the process I go through is helping people uncover these core beliefs. And two very common ones I I see come up in the coaching that I do is a core belief that thin is better which is a classic one. And if you were maybe weighed at school or you had comments from caregivers growing up, or like I say, you know, seeing people dieting around you, you, you think that therefore it's better to be thin. And so that can be something that obviously impacts what you do. So you end up dieting or you end up with poor body image because you have this idea, this core belief that thin is better. And then a very similar one. And again, I see this a lot coming up in my coaching is that this core belief of when I'm thin, then I'll be, and you know, insert any word that is useful there, but it could be, then I'll be loved or then I'll be worthy or then I'll be beautiful. And this is where you see a lot of people putting off living their lives until they lose their weight. So they may, they may say, well, when I'm thin, I'll be worthy. And therefore that's when I'll start dating again, or that's when I'll start that dance class I've always wanted to start, or that's when I'll buy myself new clothes. So again, it's something that's happened at some point, created that core belief, and then it's manifesting in this behavior of just not actually living your life right now, putting off everything, you know, until you reach this, this particular weight. How do you even go about changing these core beliefs? Because they're quite deeply rooted sometimes, aren't they? They are very, they can be. But one thing I always say to my clients is that core beliefs are things that you learn, which means you can unlearn them. So it's, again, that's a kind of a mindset piece, but going in knowing that it is something, even if it is quite deeply ingrained, it can be unlearned. And one of the things that, my clients have found really helpful, for example, in that first core belief that thin is better, you know, we we should all get thinner, is unpacking that idea. So the first thing, once people identify what their core beliefs are, is questioning that core belief. Does thin really equal better? Is it really? And I think this, again, this comes from wellness culture or diet culture, this idea that you need to lose weight in order to be more healthy. So thinner equals healthier, kind of regardless of where you are at that moment in time. And so a lot of what I do is unpacking that idea and helping people actually look at some of the research, the literature that's coming out, especially more and more these days, showing that thinner does not actually not necessarily mean healthier. And there's a whole host of research that comes out actually showing that People are much better off focusing on health promoting behaviors Mm. rather than like cardiovascular fitness, for example, rather than losing weight. And actually, weight loss isn't necessarily going to 
lead to a better health outcome. It can, in fact, it can actually lead to a worse health outcome. But actually focusing on things that the actual behaviors that promote long-term health can be so much better. And there's a lot of research that's come out now that talks about this fat but fit paradox, the idea that, and I use the word fat obviously in a descriptive way, but you can be fat and very fit and you have much better health outcomes than people who are thin and unfit. So it's about separating that idea that, you know, health has a certain look or a certain size and that actually we're much better off focusing on different things, health promoting behaviors rather than losing weight. So, so yes, yeah, so to go back to answering your question, a lot of it is unpacking that core belief. Is it actually true? And in most instances, it's not. So for example, the other one, you know, when I'm thin, then I'll be loved or beautiful or worthy or whatever. Actually, when you lose weight, yes, your appearance may change, but actually it doesn't change anything else. And this is, again, also been shown in research that people, you know, if you're just because you've lost weight doesn't mean you're going to suddenly find the love of your life or that you're suddenly going to have more self-belief or you're going to be worthy. Actually, a lot of people find it's much better to start focusing on living your life now mm. rather than putting off life to live in some future unknown time. Mm. No, thank you for sharing. And I love the way that you, you know, really bring it back to the evidence-based research, mm. because that's very powerful for people, isn't it, to actually yeah. be able to kind of see that. And it would be great, wouldn't it, for some of this to be sort of more mainstream, mm. <laughs> because it, I know. it's kind of government lag so far behind, don't yeah. they, I think, on this research that is coming out more and more and yeah. showing very, very different information. Absolutely. And I... I get so sad, actually, because I've worked with a couple of people who are doing so well and, and on that journey to find food freedom, and they're able to se separate the idea that health equals weight loss. And then they go to their doctor, for example, their GP, their GP weighs them, talks about their BMI, and then says, well, actually, you need to lose weight. And it makes me so sad, because that's not the healthiest thing for them to do at all. And the evidence shows that. Yet there's so much misinformation still out there. And, you know, obviously I'm not saying all GPs are like this, but just this one particular instance. But it's sad that that's still some of the messages that people get about their weight. And, and that's the only answer people say, you go to a healthcare practitioner and they say, well, you need to lose weight. And they don't talk about anything else. They don't ask about that person's diet. They don't check to see whether that person is fit or, you know, what's their resting heart rate and, you know, what kind of movement do they do on a daily basis? It's those questions aren't asked. It's literally looking at a number and then making a decision based off one number, which I think is not the right way to go. Mm, I'm so with you. So what about your work with sort of working on people's habits as well? Like, can you sort of share any sort of interventions or ways that you would work with your clients in terms of habit changing? Yeah, so obviously different for different people. So one of the things I really focus on is helping people first ditch diet culture and then helping them tune into their body, because I think those are two really important steps before actually focusing on any habits, because what I found with people is that from doing 
diets or following healthy eating plans for so many years, they're actually really out of touch with their bodies. So they've forgotten what it feels like I was actually forgotten what it feels like to feel hungry, not really sure where that fullness point is. They've forgotten how to eat for nourishment and satisfaction. So there's a lot of steps that I would go through first, but then it's definitely about looking at some of the habits. So I've worked with some clients who find that they are unconscious eaters. So one of the habits that they have, for example, is they'll come home from work, they'll slob out on the sofa. And in their words, I'm quoting Mm. my clients, she would say that she would slob out on the sofa and then just mindlessly eat through food. So part of the habits I help people instill is like really thinking about the eating experience, reconnecting with the eating experience. And if you are going to if you want to have a packet of crisps, by all means, have a crap packet of crisps, but connect with that eating experience. Think about the taste, the texture. Do you prefer salt and vinegar? Do you prefer salted? Do you prefer prawn cocktail? And really enjoy that eating experience. So it's about thinking a lot about the habits that people currently engage in and seeing if there are other sort of more health-promoting habits that they can implement. And another one is around movement and I find I tend to work with two different extremes often with people who do exercise. So one extreme people who are very focused on doing a lot of exercise and it's all about burning calories or for aesthetic reasons, they feel very guilty if they miss a day. So with them, it's about looking at those habits and seeing if maybe we can implement a bit more self-care into that process. So I'm all for May, you know, still having setting goals, but taking away weight loss as a goal and also aesthetic reasons. So thinking about why people do movement and is it for reasons other than just, you know, burning calories? What about your energy or your mood or your flexibility or your strength? So that's one extreme. And then the other extreme of people is people who actually do very little movement in a day. And I think partly This is where I think a lot of that diet mentality comes in, where people are, they've heard that so much that it's not really exercise unless you sweat or unless you can give a full hour or unless you can burn X amount of calories. So actually they're put off doing Mm. anything because they think, well, I can't devote, I'm a mum, for example, I can't devote an hour. So what I work a lot with is trying to help them instill habits that are little Things. So, you know, maybe mm-hmm. you can do a 10 minute walk around the block over your lunch break, or maybe you can have a, a walking meeting with someone, or maybe you can stand while you're on the phone to someone rather than sitting all day and thinking about other things as movement. So, you know, if you like gardening, gardening is movement, or you know, if you're having to clean up, cleaning is movement. So, it's about mm-hmm. thinking about other things where you're getting, you're putting movement into your day that may not be a traditional quote unquote workout and thinking about other ways to get yourself moving in a day that fits into your lifestyle. And this is the other thing where I think diet culture has really hijacked a lot of things around food and movement is that it has to work with your current lifestyle. So if you are a working mom, for example, you have very little time, maybe it isn't appropriate that you're going to be cooking from scratch every day and doing a one hour workout but let's see how we can help you 
implement habits that are going to be long-term and sustainable and not having you stressed out because you you missed a day when you were able to do these things. So yeah, so that's a little little insight into some of the things I do with people. Mm, thank you. I think the small baby steps are the mm, key, aren't they? That's a sustainable change. Yeah. Absolutely. So Lara, if people want to work with you, like what do you offer? Are you do are you online or face to face or how does that all work? So I offer an online course. So it's a six-week self-paced course that people do. And alongside that, there's group coaching as well. So they still get access to me and can contact me anytime. But the main way I do it is through, yes, through an online course. And then if people want to find me, the best way, best place to find me is on Instagram. So I'm Dr. Lara Zib on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube as Dr. Lara Zib. And if people want to get a flavor of the kind of thing I do and and my approach, they actually have a free masterclass, which is on my website, drlarazib.com forward slash masterclass. And that gives people a little bit of an insight as to what my approach is and how I work with people. Okay, lovely. And I've noticed from your Instagram, Lara, that you're very hot on your reels. <laughs> I, I love reels. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you're very creative and that you've obviously oh, been working hard. <laughs> I do really enjoy them, actually. So. <laughs> yeah, so do go and check out um, Dr. Lara's re- reels on Instagram. <laughs> well, Lara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and for sharing your story, your insights and wisdom. I really, really appreciate it. And I know the listeners are going to really find this so valuable oh thank you Harriet it's been lovely to chat to you today so I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did and do go and check out all of Lara's information in the show notes if you're not following me on already do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist and for further support with your relationship with food do go to the eating disorder And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm